likes going to the grocery store. You have to pick up the car, head to the store, shop amongst the covid masses, stand in line for hours at checkout, then drive all the way back home only to have to lug your groceries into the house. Well, what if you were able to get all your groceries delivered right to your door with savings up to 50% off of the big guys? Brian, your Thrive Market order has arrived. Thrive Market is one of the top grocery store alternatives on the market, featuring hundreds of products for specific diets and lifestyles. So, you eating paleo or Whole30, or you live in that keto life? Perhaps you have celiacs, like yours truly, and you want some gluten-free options that actually taste good. Side note, Thrive literally has one of the best gluten-free pizza crusts I've ever had. Literally have it every single week. And here's what's even better. Not only do all orders over $49 get free shipping, but members of the Brian Nichols Show audience get 20% off their first order, plus get one month of their Thrive membership for free. So head over to the show notes and click the link for your exclusive Thrive Market offer and start skipping the grocery store today. Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Good day, good day. Happy Wednesday, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for joining us, yes, on another fun-filled episode, and of course, with a phenomenal guest, if you are joining us here this week after our conversation with Free State Project, Jeremy Kaufman. Well, thank you for joining us again on today's episode, as I am joined by Associate Professor of Political Science from the Rochester Institute of Technology, Sarah Burns, and Sarah is joining The Brian Nichols Show today to discuss the Joe Biden foreign policy. Number one, what can we expect And number two, how the heck did we get here with Joe Biden having such unilateral authority and control when it comes to our national interest as it pertains to foreign policy? So, with that being said, a great conversation about a very, very important topic. So, without further ado, on to the show, Sarah Burns here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Sarah, thank you so much for joining The Brian Nichols Show. And I'm I'm excited, number one, because you are from upstate New York. You are hailing from the Rochester Institute of Technology, and you are a professor in a profession that I actually got my, my degree in, political science. So we're, we're speaking the same language here. And today, uh, we're talking about, um, really, this idea of a unilateral war power ability at the behest of the executive. And right now, that executive happens to be one President Joe Biden. But before we get there, Sarah, how about this? Let's introduce yourself to the audience. Who is Sarah Burns, political science uh, associate professor from RIT? Hi, thanks. I, uh, I'm i a professor of political science, as you mentioned. I do a lot of work on war powers, questions about how the presidency has gotten overgrown. And I then try and focus a little bit on the historical questions as to how that happened, why that happened, as well as constitutional questions like why, you know, how did the founders set up the separation of powers? And, you know, what have we done to the system? So it's now been so warped. And I actually go all the way back to the Enlightenment and look at a philosopher named Montesquieu, who was really the the granddaddy of the separation of powers. And I try and integrate him into the conversation about how our system should work and why we've gotten so far away from it. So how about this? Let's just answer the question, right? Because I think then we can kind of work backwards. So how should the system work with this idea of a, a separation of powers? 
Well, the if you look at the constitutional structures in the realm of war, but in the realm of foreign policy more broadly, you can see that Congress was really supposed to be a co-equal branch to the presidency and not only hold the president in check, but ensure that when the president got too ambitious or, or too glory hungry, that Congress would actually be there saying, you know, do we need 50,000 men to fight this war? Do we need, you know, do we really even need this war in general? And what's happened is that, you know, that hasn't stayed the way it was supposed to. So we have this working very, very well for about 150 years up until about World War II, where Congress really was doing its job and they were questioning presidents, keeping presidents, you know, on a chain essentially and saying, no, no, we don't, we don't need to do this. You, you don't need that many men. You don't need this much, you know, military. And then everything kind of changed around World War II and we have a totally different system from, from there on. So it's funny because World War II, obviously everybody instantly thinks of probably the, one of the most imperial presidencies, and that was FDR. Actually, one of my uh, poli-sci professors back in college wrote a book, and it was focused on that, of the growth of the imperial presidency. And one of the uh, presidents on his book was that of FDR. And we look at someone like an FDR and really did kind of take this step forward. I'd say, you know, it was put in motion by Woodrow Wilson back in, in the 1910s nine, through 1913, especially. 1913, I mean, goodness, I have a sponsor on my show, Proud Libertarian, and they have a, a shirt, Repeal 1913, all the bad things you can really trace back to right now today, they probably started back then, um, or at least they, they have a, a root then. Um, so it's interesting because FDR probably, he was at least the one where people can look to and say, okay, this is where we really do see this this presidency expand. And, and to your point, right, not only does this imperial presidency grow, but it does give them the ability to now have a lot of unilateral say in, in war powers, which was actually a, a you know, explicitly delegated role of Congress, the ability to declare war. And that's kind of been seemingly lost, especially in this Cold War era from 1945 on. Yes, it's definitely been lost. And I think one of the ways in which Congress has kind of, let's say, accidentally ceded its power is that once we have this huge standing military, which everyone thought was necessary right. to fight the Soviets, and everyone thought fighting the Soviets was the only way to deal with, with the issue rather than, I don't know, focusing on building your economy, ensuring that you have strength at home, all these kinds of other sensible things. <laughs> I know, right? But no, no, we just built up the military and thought, all right, let's get an industry out of that. And, you know, we have the whole military industrial complex, as, as Eisenhower mentioned. And, you know, once you have that kind of developed, then presidents can really call up the Joint Chiefs or call up any branch of the military and say, listen, I'd like you to conceptually, this is always a hypothetical that I use, you know, invade Bolivia. And, you know, Bolivia hasn't done anything. And I, I'm not suggesting that this is a, a question that's on Joe Biden's desk. But it is something that presidents have been able to do. And because Congress just year after year after year continues to fund this huge military, it makes it very, very easy for the president to just do as he pleases internationally and use the military force as he pleases internationally. Yeah. And that was to a certain extent by design at the beginning of the Cold War, but it seemingly got out of hand when you think, okay, well, once the Cold War ended, why didn't we stop that? Like, why didn't we pull back the right. military? Why didn't we have a much smaller portion of our GDP being spent on, on military forces? But then at that point, it was kind of like this unipolar moment and America was like, well, we could pull back and, you know, regroup. And spend our money on different things, but that's not that's not sensible, right? We've already got these big industries around military, so let's just keep this going. 
Yeah. It, well, it's interesting too because you see a lot of libertarians um, who also identify this 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 split, right? The idea of okay, you know, and even this is really the that goes down to like you know William F. Buckley, and he's saying, well, listen, we 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 can be libertarians, but first, first, Russia, aka mm-hmm. Soviet Union, aka communism, the the biggest baddest guys around, right? We have to contain this this you know, cancer in the world. And and that's the way it was really perceived. And then all of a sudden, when the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s, and, then, and it's like, oh, like libertarian time? And and all of a sudden, the, the goalposts moved. And, and you see this, right? Now, the goalposts moved. Now it's, okay, we'll wait to look at the Middle East. And, and then that snowball starts to go downhill. And then it turns into how many trillions of dollars, Sarah, that we've spent over in, in the Middle East now in, in, what, 20 years of war? And a lot of people are saying... To what end? And you look to say, well, how can we stop this? And you have folks, you know, I'd say in Congress, like you know, a Thomas Massey or Justin Amash back in the day, at least, uh, or a Tulsi Gabbard as well back in the day. Um, you know, we, we need some people to stand back up now. But, you know, saying, hey, shouldn't Congress kind of take back the, that war power role, at least to start saying, can we vote on this stuff instead of just kind of going along to get along and saying, well, if the president and his his experts say so, you know, they say that this is what we hear behind the scenes, then, well, we just got to trust blindly, you know? And that's, I mean, one of the things that, you know, many people were fearful during the Trump era, but I had a little tiny bit of hope that mm. maybe this was going to be a moment when Congress said, okay, guys, we've got a very different creature in the Oval Office. We, he's very unpredictable and he um, prides himself on being unpredictable. So this might be a moment for us to really regroup and, and take some of the power back for ourselves. And you see four years of essentially a wasted opportunity, Mm. especially in the realm of foreign policy, because Trump really didn't seem particularly concerned with foreign policy besides looking like, you know, an aggressive bully that everyone could recognize as an aggressive bully. But once you sort of satisfy that, that showy version of things, you know, Congress really could have done a lot of different stuff. As we see Mitch, you know, Mitch McConnell pushing through tons of judges and, you know, the president just sort of, um, you know, rubber stamping those people. They could have done so many things to reassert themselves as an entire branch. And, you know, I, I won't play partisan and say like, you know, wouldn't it have been great if the Republicans did this or the Democrats? It would have just been great to see Congress, any any group of people in Congress as a majority say to themselves collectively, let's push back against this person and let's yeah. remind the world and remind the country that we actually have a voice here and we can really direct foreign policy in a way that we haven't been for a long time. And, you know, they they got close a few times, especially around 2019-2020, when um, they tried to stop the president they put into the Defense Funding Act that you couldn't use the funds against Iran. And then that didn't quite get into the 2020 <laughs> Defense Act. And we see at the beginning of 2020 that the president, uh, sorry, the, the terms that are supposed to be used are uh, a lethal drone strike rather than an assassination, right? Oh, because we've got go. all this legal verbiage around this. But so the the lethal uh, drone strike against Qasem Soleimani was this earth shattering event where you kind of thought, are we going to go to war with Iran? And it was, you know, two days after, maybe a day or two after New Year's. So like a lot of us were kind of like, getting our you know exercise schedules back on track. And we're like, oh my gosh, now we really have to pay attention to whether or not World War III is occurring. 
And recently I've been doing some research into the congressional reaction to that. And really it's just so, you know, sad essentially to see them kind of say, you know, like the president can't start a war with Iran. And we're like, yes, we know, we know the president can, you can, you have the powers. And again and again in the congressional record, which I would never recommend anyone read unless you're uh, paid to do it. But <laughs> anyway, so reading the congressional record, you see again and again, very sensible, intelligent members of Congress and senators saying essentially the exact same thing. You know, we're the only ones who get to start a war. We're the only ones who get to decide these things. And you keep wanting to scream at them. Yes, so do it. Do like do something to reassert yourself so that you stop presidents from just making decisions without you really being involved. Yeah. Well, and here's my skeptical hat on now because you see, especially with Obama in the 2008 to 2016 foreign policy, there was no question that he was looking to, in some cases, unilaterally go after um, certain areas in the Middle East, you know, specifically we're looking at areas like Syria, Libya, and in, in those areas specifically lead to some severe destabilization in the areas. And we we saw there was this push from the the more kind of Tea Party right, that the Rand Pauls of the world, again, the Thomas Matthews of the world to say, hold up, time, time no, no, we're going to reel back this, this foreign intervention. And, you know, Rand Paul standing on the Senate floor in a filibuster, you know, still to this day, one of the all time best saying you can't just drone strike people. That's or, or as the legalese that you say, right. And yeah, lethal, lethal drone strike. Yeah. yeah, there you go. The lethal drone. Jeez. Wow. So, so PC, right. As long as that there's a yeah. rainbow flag on the drone, we're a okay. That's then that seems to be where the mindset was. And under Trump, thankfully, God, he didn't really have that, that, you know, impulse, right. To, to go, and have that, you know, he, he was a bully, but he didn't actually use the, the big club like a, a Teddy Roosevelt would. But that now let's fast forward to what we're getting ready for right now. Joe Biden, he's been in office now for just a couple of weeks and we're starting to see the, the executive orders pile up. And we've seen as this executive presidency has been built up and built up and built up more and more. I guess it seems more and more uh, rope has been given to the executive to to now use in, in these executive actions. And with that, kind of set the policy unilaterally. So let's talk about that. What's on the, the docket here as we go forward with the, the start of this new Joe Biden administration? Is it more of what we saw under a Trump administration? Or are we going back to the ways of a, a 2008, 2016, you know, uh, more of the, the John Kerry, uh, Hillary Clinton foreign policy? That's a, that's a very good question. And I think uh, one thing we're not 100% sure of is how much of the Trump foreign policy Biden is planning to just literally, you know, crumple up and throw out, which so much of it he can do, because as you mentioned, because so much is done through executive orders and executive actions, then the president has the ability to just sort of say, all right, whatever happened for the last four years, I'm just going to reverse it, right? right? And so that's already, you know, we already know that that's unfortunate. This is not how laws should work. This is not how we should be interacting with the world. So we'll set that aside for a second and look more specifically at the policies. You know, Biden has already um, uh, given more support to the the World Health Organization. So that should hopefully mean that the World Health, Health Organization is a little bit more balanced between U.S. interests and Chinese interests, because uh, part of that was obviously part of how we got uh, farther into the problems of the pandemic because the WHO was much more trusting and forgiving of the Chinese government than they probably should have been. 
as an independent organization. Now we, I'll just say, we've, we've loved it when they've been more forgiving of us, but let's not, you know, spend too much time there. Uh, the climate agreement as well, you know, there, we, we do need leadership in some kind of way on how it is to address the climate issue, whether or not the Paris agreement and that um, trajectory is actually going to create any solutions, I, I think is still an open question, but all the same, the fact that we are trying to create solutions and think about it and talk about it, I think is always beneficial. Uh, then the Iran deal, <laughs> so the, the JCPOA, which is not a great title for it, so we'll just call it the Iran deal. You know, uh, is that what we want? <laughs> like, it's carrots and sticks haven't worked with Iran so do we go back to the carrot that we had under Obama that was weak, but there was a lot of international agreement on using that carrot? You know, of when you're between a rock and a hard place, you have to eventually pick one. So it does seem to me like the JCPOA, the Iran deal, is preferred to the way in which we've been dealing with Iran for the last four years. They've just been getting more and more and more powerful in the region They've been buddying up with Russia. There's a decent amount of Russia and China and Iran getting together as like a formidable group of people who have very different interests from the United States. So having some way of having more open communication, having more friendly relationships with them after we've, you know, assassinated a high level member of their administration, I feel like that's probably the way to go just to kind of say, mea culpa to a certain extent and we're hoping to kind of uh bridge gaps with you guys rather than uh constantly see you as uh an enemy in some kind of way uh china policy i think they're going to roll back a lot of the tariffs and a lot of the kind of bullying that we saw from from trump towards china because it's really not the way to deal with they're too powerful and there was no way that the u.s was going to kind of slap them around a little bit and they would then back down. They're, they're just much, much, much too powerful and they have way too many allies. So I think the Trump, or sorry, the Biden approach, which is overriding the Trump approach, will be a good thing towards China. And hopefully that will lead to more stability, especially in the South China Sea and more international trade being kind of like a left alone as it goes through the South China Sea, which is, I think, the big thing for the US. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to think. Oh, how about, immigration how about Russia? I was going to say, how, really quick, how about Russia? Because yeah. I, I mean, Russia was the big bad guy, right, from 2016. I mean, my goodness, that was the only conversation we've heard. And thus far, I really haven't heard too much about Russia. It's true. And I, I think I think um, part of what we saw with that is that Russia was less capable of infiltrating the election in 2020. And so there was less of a concern about Russia and how it is they meddled with the with the with the sorry <laughs> there's less of a concern about how Russia meddled with the election so that was part of why they became less of a huge deal for us on top of that Putin is starting to become a little bit less powerful you know you wouldn't necessarily know it from the way he talks and the way he acts but he's getting older he doesn't have a replacement very clearly you look at all of the kerfuffle around Navalny going back from Germany to to Russia and the fact that he's getting so much play internationally and a decent amount of um, of play domestically, like if Putin can't keep Navalny quiet or deal with him in a quiet way, then that kind of shows cracks in Putin's armor. 
So I think part of why Russia won't be as much or as much of a concern is because right now they've got a lot of domestic issues that they're dealing with. And the cracks in their economy are really already starting to show very seriously. So I think they're, I don't want to say their days of meddling in our elections are over because they're not. (laughs) But I think that the, the Putin objective of undermining Western democracies to a meaningful extent is no longer a big part of his objective. Um, but that's in part because we're doing a great job on our own. And so it doesn't, we don't need Russia to be coming in here and kind of meddling with our elections. We've clearly meddled enough with our own understanding about truth and what has actually happened and the security of our own elections. So his objective in that respect has been met. And so he doesn't have to keep on going back to that. And, yeah, power-wise, I don't think, or he's powerful because he has good allies, but I don't think that domestically or internationally, he's as formidable of a player as he was in 2016. But again, that's my opinion, I would say. And I'm not sure, it seems to me like Biden is treating him in that respect, right? So he's not sort of saying Russia is a really, really big, important thing that we have to address right now. Whereas I do think that both Iran and China are formidable um, individual individual countries that you have to uh, get your hands around very quickly and very effectively in a new administration. Gotcha. And uh, I didn't mean to cut you off too. You're going towards uh, discussing immigration policy. I know we're already starting to see some conversations right now about immigration policy. So what what do you expect to see right now uh, going forward with the uh, Biden administration in terms of immigration, both in terms of those who are already in America, but also, uh, you know, new immigration policy going forward? Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, once again, you have this moment of possible hopefulness, right? Where there really is an issue with um, undocumented workers that has to be addressed, that should have been addressed 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, it's just, and on top of that, because it's so systemic, it's something that you really need to have some way forward for dealing with that question, for dealing with how it is you address people who have come into the country illegally, and have remained here, especially if they've remained here for, you know, with the dreamers, it's, it's the vast majority of their lives, right? That started it from childhood. So I think, you know, I think we will hopefully see, actually, no, I'll, I'll, re, I'll rephrase that. The citizenship questions have been on the table, and I think that that's a really good idea. And a path of citizenship is something that you eventually have to just come around to. I mean, even Reagan came around to this. So to think that it's a, a partisan issue is is just a false false flag. That said, if Biden could focus on skilled workers or increasing the number of skilled workers who come into the United States and maybe separate bills, separate immigration bills to say, okay, we're just going to deal with skilled workers first and try and increase the number of skilled workers who are coming here without any of the, there are some issues around, you know, quotas from different countries. So you'd probably want to avoid that. So you wouldn't have any kind of doubt about racism or questions about where people are coming from. You would just say, much like the Canadian um, immigration policy, you just say, look, we want to know how much money have you made? How much education do you have? What are you bringing with you when you come here in terms of skills and all those kinds of things? And that's a great immigration plan. And it's really hard for anyone to say, we don't want skilled workers who have a good education, who just want to come here and be doctors. Like, 
anyone who goes against that is just looking so nativist and nationalist in a way that's very, very ugly. So I would hope that at this point we can say, you know, that's not something that we want to to advertise as a country. And so you would be able to quiet those voices. Then after you've addressed the skilled workers, I think it would be appropriate at that point to try and deal with, like I said, the undocumented people and the questions around how you give them a path to citizenship or give them some kind of path to legal status so that people who have come here legally, skilled or unskilled, don't feel like the game is rigged, right? Because I can completely understand why it is that there would be an objection to letting those people jump the line. You know, at the end of the day, we have the situation we have. So you're kind of like, they've already jumped the line. We're here. But all the same, I can understand the objection. And so I understand why that's a harder uh, hill to hill to to climb. So let's say, Sarah, because we are unfortunately getting close to uh, already getting close to time. And it's amazing because oh. these conversations, you can just keep going and going and going. But let's do this because I think it'd be interesting to see where your your perspective is at. If you had to work in the, uh, the oh, Biden, that's a fun one. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Basically Biden. that. You might as well call it that. I was going to say, that, just, that was a Freudian slip. My goodness, it did it work. A Biden administration, and you had the magic wand, um, for, for the top three things that you could actually help impact in a positive way, and you could actually help Biden uh, in terms of pointing him in the right direction. Let's just say that, right? What would those top three issues be? Wow. Yeah. Great question. And so much fun uh, for me. Uh, so... I would say in the O Biden administration, <laughs> just because we have a lot of the Obama people coming back. And yeah. so it is true that, you know, when we get new administrations and they often look very similar to the old ones, I first in a way that would be very difficult for any president besides Biden, I think he could give away some of his powers and force Congress to hold him accountable. So in some kind of way, make it so like the War Powers Resolution, which was passed in 1973, which says that presidents, you know, can't do anything without, can't do anything militarily without congressional sanction, except they do it for 60 to 90 days. So closing that 60 to 90 day loophole, making it so that unless there's an imminent attack, that we can all understand what imminent attack means, right? There's, it's a sensible thing that any adult should be able to understand, you know, bomb is coming or, you know, Something is going to attack Americans or, you know, American allies imminently, then the president can act. But other than that, Congress should have the first say as to whether or not something should happen. So I think some way of passing some kind of legislation or the president ushering in legislation that says, I just can't use the military until you say yes. Uh, Secondarily, I guess. In relation to that, I would say um, a really systematic review of what bases and what you know um, aircraft carriers we need <laughs> to be deployed, you know, like internationally at all times, just to have a sense of what they're each doing and why they're each doing it. So some kind of understanding about how the whole fits together and whether or not every single one of them is strictly understood bringing value to security in the region, security to the American people, all these kinds of things. And then third, some, so there's two possible paths here, either some path towards 
more renewable energy, therefore less dependence on um, oil, oil. And that would kind of not exactly solve the problem with uh, focuses on the on the Middle East and North Africa, but it would go a long way to moving us away from everyone meddling in that region and everyone having so much concern for that region and that region having so much money right. to do so many things that allow them to meddle in other places in the world. And that's not to deny them, you know, the agency to meddle as they please, but it's more to say, you know, if you crack that nut, if you deal with that problem, then a lot of the issues about the U.S. meddling in all of these countries, about other countries getting involved as well and having all these horrible proxy wars in the Middle East and North Africa, a lot of that problem really melts away. Not quickly, not tomorrow, but eventually. So that would be, I think, a third possibility. Otherwise, just sort of systemically, again, trying to figure out what the value is in U.S. bases remaining, especially in that area, mm -hmm. and whether or not we really, really, really need to have the U.S. there. Because the more we are there, the more we continue this sort of vicious cycle of people saying Americans are here and they're meddling in our regimes, so we should attack them, you know, Western allies of Americans are doing the same thing, so we should attack them as well. Some of those are softer targets. So, you know, you just, right. you know, sustain this problem and, you know, figuring out a way to solve that issue, to solve the decades long, it's not even just from the war on terror, but I mean, we've been meddling in the Middle East since the Europeans pulled out in World War II. Right. So it does seem as if it, it may be time to reevaluate how it is that we're addressing issues in that region and you definitely been leading the charge there there's a, a fantastic book the politics of war powers the theory and history of presidential unilateralism that you have out there it's available on amazon i'll make sure i include the link in the show notes but also sarah you're working on some uh, some stuff behind the scenes so what is there coming down the uh, the road uh, for folks to uh, strap in for um that's coming down from sarah burns uh, thanks, Brian. I am now working on a book called Losing the Peace. So in that book was all my first book was all about how presidents have gained all this power and used it poorly. And the next book is all about how the US when it goes into a bunch of different countries and tries to be quote unquote greeted as liberators and you know have all of these things work out very well, that we aren't great at the end of a war. So we may be very good at blowing a whole bunch of stuff up. And we have an amazing military that does effective work all over the world. Sadly, they're not great at the peace building part and the regime building part. And so the next book is all about uh, what problems and issues we've had in that respect in a, in a variety of different um, military battles. Fantastic. Sarah, any uh, social media plugs we can make sure we uh, include in the show notes? Uh, I'm on Twitter. It's Sarah McKenzie B. And um, otherwise, I'm on Facebook and can be found there. But mostly, I <laughs> I try and stay a little bit offline to try and keep my my head in the game for figuring out the the big book problems. There we go. As most people should, especially when we're talking about the O Biden administration going forward. Sarah Burns, thank you so much for joining us here on the Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun. Let's sell liberty and look good doing it with proud libertarian. 
Folks, when we're selling Liberty, we have to start things off by piquing interest. And what better way to pique some interest than by rocking some amazing apparel from Proud Libertarian. Personally, I'm a huge fan of their Do Good Recklessly t-shirt, but there's more than t-shirts to find from awesome taxationist theft snapbacks to the killer Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death hoodies. Proud Libertarian has all the Libertarian swag you need. And guess what? Brian Nichols Show audience members can rock the latest Libertarian swag and save some cash on every single order. All you have to do, use code TBNS at checkout and you'll get 10% off your entire cart at checkout. That's right. Each time you order, use code TBNS and you'll instantly get 10% off your entire order. Listen, I am super excited to have Proud Libertarian here as a sponsor of the Brian Nichols Show. So do me a favor. Head over there to Proud Libertarian. Place your order today. Use code TBNS at checkout. Save 10% on your order and help support libertarian entrepreneurs today. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up my conversation with Sarah Burns. How about that? We got to learn a lot about foreign policy, how we got here, and uh, I think it's important for us to uh, make sure we're having this conversation and uh, always making sure we're educating, enlightening, and informing our friends' family. So I ask you, please share today's episode with family and friends, and if you could do me a favor, tag me when you go ahead and do that, at B Nichols Liberty. You can tag me at Twitter. Facebook, and Minds.com. Also, you want to get in touch with me, email me, brian at briannicholsshow.com. So I mentioned it here on Monday. We had a great conversation with Jeremy Kaufman from the Free State Project. On Friday, we are joined by comedian Chrissy Mayer. She joins the Brian Nichols Show to discuss politics, all things funny, in an era where it seems we're not allowed to have fun and be funny. So, a great conversation with Chrissy, all things fun and fun. So, folks, if you're enjoying what we're doing here on The Brian Nichols Show, you know what I'm going to ask you to do. Please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcast and give us a five-star rating and review. I greatly appreciate it. And I will be reading a new review coming up here on Friday. So get your reviews in between now and Friday to hear your review read on air. But guys, with that being said, thank you for subscribing to the show. And the numbers keep on going up. So I Again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys for all the love and support. So guys, with that being said, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Sarah Burns. We'll see you Friday. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.